Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks, where we are walking in the footsteps of soldiers on some of the great battlefields of the world. I'm joined by my very good friend and battlefield historian, Pete Smith. Pete, great to have you back again. Hey, Matt. Great to be here. Moving away from the Western Front, Pete, to Gallipoli. Now, a battlefield that I think is close to the heart of just about everyone who visits it. It's an extraordinary battlefield. And really, before we begin, we should just say, what an extraordinary place. The whole point of this podcast is to walk in the footsteps, virtually to walk in the footsteps of the soldiers who were there, which I think is the most important aspect of studying history. If you want to learn, not learn, if it makes it sound like a boring school or university, if you want to understand a little bit of what these men went through, the best way to do it is to walk the battlefields. And there is no battlefield like Gallipoli when it comes to that. It's a rugged, harsh landscape, which is, in terms of battlefields, is as unchanged as a battlefield could be from 1915 and when you walk the ground you really are walking with the ghosts of the men that were there what was your experience i mean the first time you went to gallipoli was with me i I took you there to show you around what's your impression of gallipoli extraordinary matt really i I have to say i agree entirely with what you're saying but but there's something else that i found uh, really uh, amazing was it didn't really feel like i expected it to we all have a mental image of what a battlefield is going to be you know you look at your photographs you look at your maps you look at your plans but when I strapped on those boots and set out for that first day and, and especially looked up from Anzac Cove and, and to the ridges and 
I just, I was blown away. I thought, this is not what I expected. And I have to say, why would I think that? Because I, I thought I knew exactly what it was going to look like but uh, and feel like. But no, very, very different. Much closer, much, uh, not, not enough landscape, steeper, uh, just extraordinary. And, and I think that's the reason to walk these landscapes is that you need to walk them because there's there's nothing better. It, 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 it is always going to feel different. And I have to say, my experience is on any battlefield, that's how it feels. It doesn't feel like how you expect it to it's different that's why we should get out and walk them because it gives us a whole new perspective and everything from the landscape to the climate is an essential part of understanding what went on there so we're going to do lots of visits to gallipoli it's it's an iconic battlefield it's a wonderful battlefield for walking another thing we should mention is that when thousands and thousands of people go to gallipoli every year but almost all of them do it via road they do it either on a most of them on a tour coach occasionally they hire their own car and i've got to say if you do it in motorised transport, you are missing out on one of the most wonderful experiences on any battlefield anywhere in the world, which is getting out and walking at Gallipoli because it is a battlefield that just needs to be walked. Firstly, you can do it because it's relatively compact, these areas we're talking about, but also the story just comes to life. The history just comes to life when you get out and strap the boots on and walk around. So that's what we're going to do today, and we'll do lots of walks around Gallipoli because it's one of my favourite places, just a fascinating battlefield. And this walk we're going to do is along Second Ridge. And now we're in the Anzac sector. There's three main sectors at Gallipoli. There's uh, the Anzac sector, the Hellez sector down in the south, and the Suvla sector in the north, and we'll cover those in future podcasts. Today we're doing a specific part of the Anzac sector, which is called the Second Ridge. And now the Second Ridge, very loosely, there were three ridges which extended along the peninsula in the Anzac sector where the Australians and New Zealanders fought. Uh, And Second Ridge became the front line on the day of the landing. And so... It's a relatively steep-sided ridge. The third ridge behind it is even steeper, but the Australians and New Zealanders barely got to that position. This was where the front line was. And so imagine a ridge line. I mean, again, as we say on all these podcasts, get out a map and have a look where we're walking because it will make a lot more sense when you see it on the ground. But imagine a ridge line effectively with Anzac troops on the western side and Turkish troops on the eastern side. And what is now a road that goes along these main sites was the front line, was no man's land. And so it's just an extraordinary place where you can, as I said, most people drive this area and then they miss out on on so much and so much that this visit can offer them. So we're going to walk Second Ridge today from Lone Pine all the way up the ridge and we're going to see those those wonderful sites. I'm excited. So we're going to start at Lone Pine Cemetery and Lone Pine, you know, one of the iconic places on the Gallipoli battlefield. This is the huge, predominantly Australian memorial and a massive cemetery. And Lone Pine was a feature from the first day of the fighting. And so it's it's on an area known as 400 Plateau. Uh, and this was an area that needed to be captured on the first day of the fighting. And the, 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 fi- the, the fighting on the day of the landing is incredibly complicated. And I won't dig too much into it here because we'll, we'll get way too bogged down. But basically, there were a number of key landmarks, high ground. It was all about securing the high ground. And the Australians in particular in the opening days realised that 400 Plateau was essential essential to capture. And one of the features they could see was a, a lone pine, a pine tree standing all on its own. And so it, on the first day, it was given the name Lone Pine. The Australians occupied it on the first day. Uh, and then from April 25 onwards, it became a, a, a very important part of the Anzac front line. Not so many New Zealanders in this section, mostly occupied by Australians. So when we talk about Lone Pine, it's predominantly an Australian operation. So what I might do is I'll start by giving a little overview of the of the key fighting that occurred there uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the cemetery Pete. So the 
the basic uh, the Lone Fine is most famous for the attack that took place in August 1915. This was during the August offensive where the Allies received a big influx of troops and had one last effort to try and break out of the prison they were in at Anzac. And the, the main battle was actually occurring north of the Anzac sector, a big wheeling movement where Australian, British and New Zealand troops would swing out of Anzac and try to outflank the Turks in the high ground. It was a huge disaster. None of it worked. And we'll certainly cover that in a future podcast, Pete. But the as as part of this action, they further south along the line, they wanted to hold Turkish troops there. This is a, I think, in a number, we, we did our Fromel podcast recently, we talked about this concept of holding troops in the line. Uh, it doesn't work particularly effectively, and it didn't work here either. But the, the attack at Lone Pine in August was a diversionary attack while these other battles were taking place elsewhere at Gallipoli. And effectively, it meant that the Australians who had held Lone Pine for months were ordered to leave their trenches, charge across no man's land and take the Turkish trenches which they did, uh, and then over several days from August 6th for the next week or so was some of the bloodiest fighting of the Gallipoli campaign. So I wanted to start just with a description of that first charge across no man's land because if you can imagine for, for several months this had been no man's land was literally no man's land. You couldn't set foot out into, into this space without being, being cut down by machine gun fire. So to make that charge on the afternoon of August 6th across no man's land must have been absolutely terrifying for the troops involved. And this was Private William Bendry of the 2nd Battalion. This is how he described that charge across no man's land. Talk about shrapnel. It sounded for all the world like hail. The bush around the daisy patch in no man's land caught a light and showed us up beautifully to the Turkish machine gunners. The fire was simply hellish, shell rifle and machine gun fire, and I'm hanged if I know how we got across the daisy patch. Every bush seemed to be literally ripped with bullets. Our luck was right in. So the Australians charged across no man's land, which is basically now the area held by, which is now the cemetery at Lone Pine. And, and Lone Pine today is a beautiful cemetery and memorial. Pete, what did you, what were your feelings the first time you saw this immense cemetery at Lone Pine? Well, I think the two things that really struck me was, first of all, that it's, it, it's actually built right upon where the fighting took place. And I think that's, uh, that, that's an extraordinary aspect in its own right, that they decided to build the cemetery slap bang in the middle of no man's land. Effectively, the Australian uh, trenches are at one side of the cemetery and the, the, the Turkish trenches are, are at the other um, and I think the most stunning aspect of it for me is, is, is bizarre isn't it I suppose it's a juxtaposition is how beautiful it was how beautiful that the cemetery was the memorial was the views from it and yet how equally how terrible when you knew what had happened here in such a small space and I think that's the other really overwhelming aspect if you're used to the Western Front and you're used to the distances involved, very often hundreds and hundreds of meters uh, of no man's land, and here it's you know it's 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 tens of meters in in some of the places. You know it's it's almost spitting distance. You know you can hear each other talking, and I think it's just extraordinary. Um, the cemetery itself is is beautiful as as they all are. Um, it's incorporating both the, uh, the 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 remains of soldiers who were recovered and, and brought into the cemetery, and also then the, the a memorial to the missing. So yeah, a, st- a stunning sight in it, in its uh, in its own right. You mentioned that the memorial at the far side of the cemetery is built over the side of the tu- of the Turkish lines, and this is the key feature of the fighting that took place in the week after August 6, 1915, when the battle began, was some of the most savage hand-to-hand fighting of the entire Gallipoli campaign. So the Australians, when they arrived at the Turkish trenches, found them covered with logs. The Turks had built a head cover, as it was called, with pine logs to, to protect the trenches. So the Australians had to prise up these logs, 
and then the courage to jump down into the Turkish trenches and, and meet the enemy face-to-face was just something extraordinary. Anyone who's been to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra will remember the wonderful diorama depicting the fighting at Lone Pine, including uh, they have uh, original logs there from the, from the head cover at the Lone Pine trenches. So an iconic battle uh, and some of the most horrific fighting that, that you could imagine from the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, characterised by the bayonet was used ferociously, and bombs were used as well, what they called bombs, what we would today refer to as hand grenades, but primitive bombs, uh, jam, tin bom- jam tin bombs from the Australians made out of, uh, out of old jam tins, and cricket ball bombs from the Turks, a small iron ball which looked like a cricket ball with a fuse. And that was a key aspect of the fighting. And, and I've got a quote here uh, that, uh, from Lieutenant Frank Semple, which describes exactly what it was like being involved in these bomb fights with the Turks in the, in the claustrophobic trenches of Lone Pine. They take anything from one to five seconds to explode after landing, and if you are close enough, the best thing to do is throw them back. The other day, one of our men picked up three in quick succession and threw them back to the enemy, but the fourth was one too many. It exploded in his hand, blowing it off, and also injured two others, one losing an eye and the other two eyes. So just imagine the horror of that and... Uh, I won't get too much into detail of just what it was like at Lone Pine, but just imagine men using bayonets, bombs, fists, the butts of rifles, shovels, anything they could lay their hands on, their bare hands to fight with the Turks in the, in the claustrophobic trenches. And by the time the fighting was over and by the time the Australians successfully had captured Lone Pine, they had received seven Victoria Crosses for their action there, which is more than in any other individual action that Australians have ever participated in. So... Just extraordinary fighting. There's some wonderful books that have been written that have described the fighting at Lone Pine. So I would suggest that uh, if you want to learn more about exactly what, what went on at Lone Pine, uh, read those books. And Pete, we will cover Lone Pine in more detail uh, in a future podcast. This is a slight overview of the, uh, of, the, of the battle and the fighting in the area and a starting point for our walk along Second Ridge. But we will cover Lone Pine in more detail in a separate podcast. Can I just go back just just slightly, Matt, and just talk about the, uh, the the hand grenade, the bomb? I think it's fascinating, isn't it? That you, you think you know t- technologically we should be by far ahead of the uh, of the Turks, uh, and yet they had uh, proper professionally made. Yes, they were s- uh, steel balls. I suspect copied from the German design, the Kugel the Kugel grenade, um, and were trying to make. Um, bombs out of jam tins, you know, and so it's, I think it's an interesting aspect that we we didn't have hand grenades. We had no bomb when we started this campaign, and suddenly they became absolutely crucial. The the the, the jam tin bomb, as it be, becomes known, the jam tin bomb, crucial to the fighting. And for the whole of the of the campaign, we are cobbling together our our grenades, our bombs, and yet the Turks have got these steel balls that are professionally uh, made and uh, 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 and do the, do the trick. A lot better than you have to say than our our jam tin bombs. So I think it's an interesting aspect that something that we were not expecting. You know, we we thought we were technologically advanced, and yet here we are um, being held back by not having grenades. Brutal and primitive fighting in Lone Pine, and as I said, we'll cover the the, the battle and the cemetery in more detail in a future podcast. But there there are a number of notable graves here in the one thousand one hundred and sixty seven men buried here. The only one I'm going to mention at the moment is one that I found quite fascinating is Private Benjamin Armstrong, who has a special memorial in the cemetery. Uh, He served with the 2nd Battalion and was killed sometime between the 6th and 9th of August. Another aspect you often see on these graves, on these headstones, is a very wide range of dates because we don't know when men were killed. They went into the battle on the first day and they didn't come out. And so we assume that they were killed as uh, as Private Armstrong is here between the 6th and the 9th of uh, August. But 
something that I think is fascinating about um, Private Armstrong is he was living in Australia at the time of the war, so felt it was his duty to enlist, but he's actually from Los Angeles. So one of the few Americans to serve at Gallipoli with the Australian forces and was killed at Lone Pine. Imagine the... Uh, I, 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 I find it quite fascinating to imagine the reception he received from his... Uh, from his comrades in the 2nd Battalion with his, uh, his Los Angeles accent, Pete. Yeah, uh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And again, I'm just going to quickly just, just cover something. It's how, how do we know when a soldier is, uh, uh, is lost, when, he, when he's killed, and yet we don't know when he, uh, he died? Well, effectively, that's done by a roll call when the battalion comes out of the line. And that's quite difficult uh, on the Gallipoli, Gallipoli Peninsula because coming out of the line is, is not a safe. There's nowhere that's really safe. But normally you would have a parade and the men would, uh, the, the officer would shout out the names of all of the men in his company, in his battalion. And if you knew that so-and-so had been killed, you would say, so-and-so, so-and-so, yes, I saw him, he's dead. But... If you have a spread of dates, that really means that nobody answered. So when they called out that guy's name, there wasn't a single person that knew when he'd been killed. And that means that the casualties are very heavy because nobody's there to actually give you that detail of, of when a man is killed. And so a spread of dates is telling you something else. We're back to that little story again that the, the battlefields tell you stories without actually making it obvious, and one of them is that a soldier with a spread of dates, it means that the battalion had very heavy casualties because there was nobody there that could say when he had, uh, he had, he had died. There was one grave I saw at Gallipoli, Pete, that had a two-week spread of dates. There was a two-week gap between the two dates indicating that a soldier had gone into action and simply not come back, and they had absolutely no idea when he'd been killed. Really quite extraordinary. At the back of the cemetery as well is the Lone Pine Memorial, uh, which records uh, Australian um, missing or soldiers who either were buried at sea or have no known grave, 4,228 of them, but also, interestingly, 708 New Zealanders who were killed in the sector before the August offensive. Uh, And so, um, again, when we do our follow-up, we'll talk more in detail about the Lone Pine Memorial. But if you want to find the missing uh, from the Gallipoli campaign, they're all recorded. The Australians are recorded on the Lone Pine Memorial. Um, the New Zealanders are recorded Lone Pine, Chunuk Bear, and a couple of other sites. There's also some Australians and New Zealanders recorded on Hellas down in the southern sector, which is unusual because there was not a lot of fighting from the Anzacs down in that sector. Um, but again, we'll talk about that when we walk Hellas, an extraordinary place. So Lone Pine, you can spend hours there. It's just an extraordinary cemetery. It's a couple of different plots. There is a pine tree that has been planted there, propagated from the seeds of, of that was originally taken from a pine cone from the head covering at the Lone Pine Trenches. Um, so just an extraordinary place. But we're going to leave Lone Pine now, and we're actually going to head out through, we're facing the memorial at the front, we're going to head out the gate on the right. And only a year or so ago, there would have been no point doing this, because if you head out the gate on the right, you have some nice views across the across the water and across the Anzac sector, but that was about all. But now there's something absolutely extraordinary to see there, which is the Silt Spur Trenches. Now, the Turkish authorities are currently... On a have a program going to clear up some of the battlefields and to expose the trenches that are there, and I think it's absolutely wonderful. It's been a little bit controversial because people are worried about about conserving the trenches as they as they remain. But I think the Turks are doing it very very well. So Turkish authorities are choosing sectors of Gallipoli and coming in and clearing the undergrowth away. They're cutting the trees off at ground level, leaving the root systems in place. So that should protect the trenches that they're that they're uncovering in this process. So I'm not too worried about conservation. And then they're letting nature return to it over the course of a, of a few years and then clearing another sector. So it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And the reason it's wonderful is I never even realised there was a trench system at Silt Spur. But when I first visited it, it was extraordinary. A huge area, several hundred square metres of, 
trenches have been uncovered. And it was the most wonderful experience I've ever had on a battlefield because I downloaded a map that the 10th Battalion had produced of the trenches that they had dug in this sector. In fact, most of them were tunnels. They weren't even trenches. They were tunnels in the Siltspur area. And they mapped every tunnel and every trench and every listening post. And when I then walked this area with Peter Hart, another good colleague of ours, we could see every trench and every dugout and every listening post was still there because it had been preserved under this undergrowth since 1915. And to have a map as accurate as this one showing every corner of every trench and then to be able to walk in those trenches was just an extraordinary experience. We, it's rare to get an opportunity like that to explore every every nook and cranny of a First World War trench system. You were back in the trenches. We were actually walking along and I, was, I had my head down looking at the map and I said to Pete, on the left coming up, there should be a dugout, which was the commanding officer's dugout. And as I looked up, Peter was standing in a recess in the wall of the trench that was the dugout that had been occupied by the commanding officer. Absolutely extraordinary. Pete, you haven't been there, have you? The next the, time we go to Gallipoli, you'll have to go and explore Silksworth. I haven't. Sorry to interrupt. I, I haven't indeed. And I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I think so lucky that we actually have that uh, 10th Battalion map to look at. And in fact, I downloaded it earlier on uh, today uh, just to have a have a shifty at it. For a few dollars, you can, you can download it from the uh, War Memorial. Uh, just phenomenal that we have that map as well and we have now the area cleared. It, it makes you wonder, did, did the Turkish authorities know about the map before they cleared it because it's just extraordinary that they're clearing an area that has is so well mapped so so stunning can't wait to go it's absolutely extraordinary one of the highlights of visiting any battlefield we made a video of it look out for our video on youtube of us exploring the lost gallipoli trenches and peter hart and i were just uh, beside ourselves with excitement we had our uh, giddy schoolboy voices on because it was just such a fascinating experience we we're both overwhelmed by how amazing that was so we're going to leave silt spur now head back through lone pine cemetery and now onto the road uh, that that cuts through the former no man's land. So as we walk along this road, we're going to head we're going to head north. We're going to be walking up towards the high ground. Um, on our left, imagine the Anzac positions, and on on the right, the Turkish positions. And in many cases, in in many areas of this of this battlefield, the front line was effectively the width of the road, and throwing bombs between the trenches was very very common. Bombs and other bits and pieces that the troops would choose to throw to each other. So they, the Australians could hear the Turks talking. The Turks could hear the Australians and New Zealanders planning their attacks. And so as we walk along this road, the road follows the, the contours of no man's land. And the other thing that you should note as you walk along here is just how much the front line curved and bent back on itself. And what this meant was that there was a network of machine guns which covered no man's land. And this is why no attacks were ever successful. Several were made across no man's land during the course of the campaign. But the reason none were successful was this network of machine guns that just provided interlocking fire. And Pete, maybe you can talk to us about enfilading fire because most of the firing of the machine guns was not done straight across no man's land. It was, it was, it was along no man's land following the road rather than shooting directly across no man's land. So talk to us a little bit about enfilading fire. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult um, uh, road. If you, when we walk down the road, you can see because of that weaving, it means we are, there are bulges that stick out. So if you're trying to, uh, to cover a bulge in a line or cover uh, anybody trying to, to attack, then the best thing is not to be firing directly at your enemy as, it, as they're running towards you. So that's the easiest way to think about enfilade fire. You are not firing your gun directly at your enemy as he's running towards you. What you are doing, you are firing obliquely across no man's land or across that space in between the the, the, the trenches. 
And so the fire is hitting from your side. And so if you imagine it's called enfilade fire. If you imagine you have a line of men, just, just for, for, for an example, they're walking side by side, moving forward in an extended line. Well, if you can fire from the side of them, eventually they're going to either walk into the line, be hit immediately, or walk into your fire, into your, it's called the beaten zone. An area of, uh, of landscape where the bullets are flying across or hitting, and you're going to walk into it. So you're not trying Tracking men by aiming at them, you are waiting for men to walk into your field of fire. Now, if you have several machine guns, which the Turks and, of course, the Australians did have, you can get interlocking fields of fire, which means that they're crisscrossing. And so that means if you get through one, you're going to walk into another one. So it, made, it meant crossing no man's land becomes almost impossible. And here we have both sides doing it. So both the Turkish guns and the Australian guns interlocking fields of fire, crisscrossing no man's land. It meant whichever was attacking, almost impossible to get across. And if you do manage to get through those interlocking fields of fire, you then got to face the infantryman himself with his rifle and his bayonets who is waiting for you uh, to either shoot you or to bane at you as you as you get across. So it's no wonder that we had no major success from either side in forcing each other back because of this interlocking fields of fire from enfilade machine guns. As we continue our walk along the road, we come to a cemetery on our right, which is Johnston's Jolly Cemetery. And this was the this is the left the the, the heart-shaped lobe that forms 400 plateau. This is the the left side of that and Johnston's Jolly was another very prominent part of the Anzac front line there's some conjecture about how it got the name but um uh but uh, George Johnson was a colonel in the artillery brigade the second field artillery and uh there's suggestions that on the in the earliest days of the campaign he's he said that his artillery was doing a good job jollying up the Turks in that sector so it became uh, Johnston's Jolly and the cemetery is um is quite a quite a lovely little cemetery but it represents something that's really important about the Gallipoli cemeteries the original concept for the cemeteries at Gallipoli on this front line was that they were going to uh, each cemetery would effectively stand alone and record the post that had been there so the Gallipoli sector the Anzac sector in this front line was broken up into so many small little posts and and for the men that served there this was their world if they served in at Johnston's Jolly or they served at Lone Pine or they served at Courtney's Post or Quinn's Post that was their entire world. They would spend weeks and weeks in the trenches in this area. They would come out of the line and back into the same sector. Often they didn't swap battalions around because battalions learnt what was the, the, the best way to hold these trenches. So they would often find themselves very closely associated with a post. So the original plan at Gallipoli was they were going to build cemeteries at each of these posts. And then and on a memorial at that cemetery, they would record all the men who were killed and missing from that area. It never quite worked out that way. In the end, they decided to build just one memorial to the missing at Lone Pine, uh, the cemeteries were not quite uh, did not quite come to fruition the way they envisaged, but the, the the basic concept is still there. So as you walk along this second ridge, you will come to cemeteries that mark specific sites. Johnson's Jolly is an interesting one because it's actually built on the Turkish side of the line. So the uh, the men who are buried in that uh, cemetery are occupying ground that their their comrades never met never achieved uh, in life. Uh, but it's an interesting uh, uh, little cemetery. And it's also the site of the famous uh, Turkish attack of the 19th of May when the Turks launched this huge assault on the Anzac lines on the 19th of May, which was beaten back with massive casualties uh, and really demonstrated once and for all that no frontal assault was ever going to work at Gallipoli. And, and following the attack of 19th of May was the famous truce where the dead were buried and where the, the Turks and the Anzacs met in no man's land. And that Johnson's Jolly is a great spot to to think about the um, the... The truce, and uh, that that took place after the the battle 
of, of the 19th of May. Uh, and so Johnson's Jolly, 181 burials, only a small cemetery and a number of notable cemetery, a uh, number of notable burial, burials in that cemetery. But just across the road from Johnson's Jolly is again a preserved network of trenches. Now these have been here for decades. These have been here since probably the end of the campaign. Um, and up until the recent work to uncover more trenches, this was really the only spot where you could see, particularly an Anzac trench. Um, but really, quite an extraordinary network of trenches, Pete. It's it's. I remember the first time we went there to Johnson's Jolly and walking this network of trenches. There's tunnels. There's all sorts of fascinating things to see. And again, it's quite extensive. Oh, it is. It's um, uh, prior to uh, Silt Spur. Then uh, this was really where you went to to get a feel of what it was like uh, to uh, to live in the trenches uh, up on on Second Ridge. So uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it, it all helps. You get that kind of feel of what it what it, what it was like to be there at the time. Um, I'm just going to just just backtrack uh, a little a little and, and talk ab- uh, about the uh, the burials within that cemetery. I think one of the things that we often uh, we often obviously believe is you you see a cemetery, you see all the markers, and you automatically think that the soldiers are buried beneath them. The nature of the fighting and the nature of the recovery and trying to, to build these cemeteries caused uh, caused a bit of a problem that men uh, were not always uh, uh, intact and, and could be buried, and so. I think with all of these cemeteries, you have to take the headstones with a, a little bit of a pinch of salt. And, and even when you're walking on the lawned areas where there's no, there's no headstone, I think quite often you're, you're walking uh, above the remains of soldiers who are below. And in fact, in Johnson's Jolly, there is actually one, only one marker, which we know for a fact that the soldier is, is beneath it, uh, beneath that, that, that marker. All of the others, then there, there is certainly some doubt that they may not be below the, uh, uh, the markers at, at, at all. So it's a very different type of burial to the to the western front at, at uh, uh, on the on the peninsula uh, and specifically on these uh, these these ridges on the second ridge the cemeteries on second ridge one of the other things we, we haven't spoken about is the, is the Turkish names for these. And, of course, the Turks call, call them by different names. And uh, the area around Johnson's Jolly was known as, as Crimson Ridge, which I think gives you an indication of, of, uh, of, the, of the casualties up there. And, in fact, Lone Pine was known as Bloody Ridge. So two names associated w- with blood. And those 10,000 uh, Turks, which will become casualties uh, uh, around the area of Johnson's Jolly, just almost when you look at the area and we see what a small area it is before the landscape starts to drop off again right on the top of that ridge that those number of casualties no wonder they had to have a truce to to bury the dead it must have been truly well you can't you can't even imagine it can you what it what it would have been like mind boggling just horrific the the nature of you know what they found in fact it's a good opportunity for me to talk uh, this is a quote here uh, from an australian this is a, a lieutenant actually he's british lieutenant Compton McKenzie was uh, was there during the truce, and this is what he recalled of the the nature. It's a little bit ghastly, so uh, so forgive me for that. But I think it's important we remember actually what was going on at these battles. So he climbed up out of the trench. The truce was on, so he was he could freely move out of the trenches into no man's land. So he climbed up onto the parapet of the Australian trench, and as he did, an Australian called out and said that, "Mate, you've got your foot in an awkward place." And this is the quote from Compton McKenzie. Looking down, I saw squelching up from the ground on either side of my boot like a rotten mangold, the green and black flesh of a Turk's head. The parapet's bloody well made up of dead bodies, said our friend below, putting out his hand to help me jump back into the trench, for he saw that I'd had enough of it up there. The impression which that scene from the ridge made on my mind has obliterated all of the rest of the time at Anzac. I cannot recall a single incident on the way back down the valley. I only know that nothing could cleanse the smell of death from the nostrils for a fortnight afterwards. 
Just imagine. I mean, we've talked a lot about this and we talk about this in all our podcasts. Peter Hart in his Military History podcast talks a lot about, he did a whole podcast on conditions at Gallipoli, talking about what it was like to live with the stench of death permeating, the food, the awful food, the flies, dysentery. Men who were arriving at Gallipoli said they could smell it long before they could see it because it was just such a horrific place to be. And Johnson's Jolly is a, is a, is a perfect place to just remember that. It's hard to imagine today. It's a beautiful place today. It's just hard to imagine uh, everything that went on. Pete, in your experience as a battlefield historian, that must be one of the great challenges is helping people to understand just the, the, the difference in the, battle, the beautiful battlefields they see today with the horror of a century ago. It is. It, it's very difficult. And I actually am one of the the guides and, and historians that I don't like carrying around a load of, uh, of photographs with me. I think it's better to use your voice and your imagination to try and envisage what it was like. Because even with photographs, to, to, to try and mentally, uh, when you've got that many dead, to, to imagine what it was like, it's not just visual, it's the smell as well. It's it's everything. So it is, it's it's very difficult to uh, to, to imagine what the landscapes were like, but I prefer to use a voice rather than photographs because I think photographs, black and white photographs, don't really tell the story either. It, it is, uh, it's yeah, one of the harder aspects of a of a modern beautiful landscape. And as you just said, the landscape itself is beautiful. You know, we stand on the on these ridges looking down towards Anzac Cove, and it's beautiful. And it's very hard to to get your head around what what went on over a hundred years ago on these ridges. And that bayonet wasn't on there for, uh, for you know, we, we often talk about the bayonet on the end of your rifle. And very often in, in the modern warfare, you know, people, you know, it's something that still, still is used, it's still on the rifle, but very rarely used. But by gum, uh, at this period, uh, uh, fighting on these ridges, the bayonet was a crucial weapon. You didn't have the time to recock your rifle. You ran out of bombs very quickly. And that, that rifle and bayonet, so it's, it's almost medieval warfare fighting on these ridges. Peter Hart, uh, that that I've previously mentioned, if you're ever fortunate enough to go to the battlefields with Peter Hart, he does operate tours there, and you should take the opportunity to travel with him if you have the chance. But he bridges that gap of time and history uh, because he was the oral historian at the Imperial War Museum for so many years. He brings a portable speaker with him, a Bluetooth speaker, and he actually plays accounts from veterans, obviously made many decades after they were at Gallipoli, but just telling the story of what it was like to stand on a patch of ground. And because Gallipoli is so compartmentalised, it's it's so broken down into different areas. When a soldier says, I was at Dead Man's Ridge or I was at German officer's trench, today you can stand exactly on that spot and, and hearing these veterans in their own words describing what it was like in 1915 is is just extraordinary. It's It's just a wonderful place. So... We're leaving Johnson's Jolly Cemetery. We're leaving the trenches across the road. We're continuing along the road. And soon we'll come to a track, a sign and a track leading down to the left to another cemetery, which is 4th Battalion Parade Ground. Uh, It's quite a steep climb climb back up the steps, so only do it if you're feeling fit. But if you head down there, you come to this beautiful cemetery tucked into the, the, the lee of the hill. And it is flat ground, which and it's the 4th Battalion Parade Ground. And you can see why that this was a parade ground for the battalion behind the line. And there were a number of little nooks and crannies in the side of the ridge that the, the Anzacs would utilise for this purpose, uh, for assembly, for where troops would assemble, where they'd go back to when they wanted to rest from the front line. Obviously very close to the front lines. There was no safe place at Gallipoli. Everywhere was under fire. Uh, but this is a great example of how the troops used to assemble. And there's a, a cemetery has now been built there, which is a beautiful, a beautiful small cemetery. But there's also a track that leads down all the way back to the beach. It leads all the way back to Shrapnel Valley Cemetery, way down at the beach. And this was a track that it wasn't there during the fighting because it follows the ridge lines. And any soldier who was foolish enough to expose his head during the fighting would have been shot. But 
it's a track that tourists have been using ever since and um i've I've done it a number of times it's again it's quite overgrown and only do it firstly don't do it on your own only do it if you if you're traveling with someone else particularly with a turkish guide it's always important so you don't lose your way but it is quite a, a wonderful experience to walk back down along this this path from fourth battalion parade ground cemetery all the way back to the beach uh quite a quite an extraordinary walk uh, back down and gives you a wonderful view of the the approach line used by the by the Australians to get back up to the second ridge and to the front line. But we're going to head back up the steps now. Uh, there's a tunnel we can see on the way back up the steps, Pete, just on the left-hand side as we head back up. We're going to head back up onto that main road and we're going to continue walking along. The, the first time I came here, Pete, I was struck by how close the front lines were. As we walk along this section of the line now, you can see Turkish trenches overgrown in the scrub on the right-hand side. It's just extraordinary to think, especially considering that you spend most of your time on the Western Front where no man's land can be half a kilometre wide in some places, to see that we are literally 10 or 20 metres away from the enemy here. It, it, it is extraordinary. It, it also uh, meant that you uh, you were very much aware of, of movement. And so, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the movement of battalions in and out, which you'd expect on the Western Front, and certainly the, the first winter of 1617, they're only doing three days. So a battalion three days in the front line. That is not going to happen here. The movement of men is, is not done unless you really, really have to. If you can get the food up to them, if uh, if they're, uh, they, they get downtime by just moving off the ridges and moving to, to places like the parade, ground uh, area where they can ju- just have a little bit more uh, they can relax just for a, a little bit more then uh, then that's what what's going to happen They're just so close to each other just re- reiterating on parade ground cemetery again we have an oddity here in this case it is a, a battlefield cemetery and so it, it's the reversal of what i was just explaining uh, 116 burials and of that 116, only seven are unknown. So those guys are beneath their headstones, and that's because we're just off the battlefield. We're just down that, down the back of it, uh, away, away, just slightly tucked, uh, tucked away. And so it's a, it's a different, uh, different uh, way of, bur- of burying, I suppose. They, they are buried uh, individually there. So 116, but only seven of them are, are unknown. Yeah, it's um, and that's why the the grenade was also so crucial because the lines are so close together. Grenades become so crucial because literally you could throw your grenade straight into the Turkish trench. So it was uh, important that that grenade could be thrown straight into the Turkish trench, that bomb from your trench, without it bouncing just straight in. Just extraordinary fighting, isn't it? As we talk about it, you're just overwhelmed by this concept of what these men went through. And again, so different to what they'd face on the Western Front. Uh, in the years uh, for the rest of the war. As we continue along the road, we're going to come to a cemetery on the left, which is uh, Courtney's and Steele's Cemetery, it's known as, and again, named after two very important posts in this area. So I want people to get this impression that the front line wasn't just a series of connected trenches. In many places in the Anzac sectors, the trenches weren't connected at all. What we had were these posts, these vitally important posts in key areas. Usually they'd been occupied on the first day. On the 25th of April, the Australians had dug in on one side of the ridge, the Turks had dug in on the other. And these places where the soldiers had dug in became these posts. And there were two posts here very close together, which were Courtney's post and Steele's post, named after officers who had, uh, who had been there on the, in, on the opening days of the, of the campaign. And today, again, in this concept of bringing these cemet- building these cemeteries in key points at, to, to commemorate these posts, Courtney's and Steele's has been combined into, into one cemetery. Now, this was a tough position. The, the, the three posts in this area, Courtney's, Steele's and Quinn's, were probably the three most dangerous places on the in the Anzac sector at Gallipoli. And they really symbolise just the hanging on. I mean, people say, why do we remember Gallipoli so much? And my answer is always, we remember the hanging on 
it, we remember the Aussies literally clinging to cliff sides and refusing to be forced back to the beach. And that's what we remember about Gallipoli. And I think Courtney's and Steele sum that up, uh, you know, better than anywhere else. Um, at uh, at Courtney's, there was actually, um, no, I'm sorry, at Steele's, there was actually a rope up the cliff to get into the post. It was so steep, you couldn't even climb in there. You needed a rope to get up there. And so that's how steep the approaches were to Steele's post. So just extraordinary that men could dig trenches and defend them in these places. It's It's just unbelievable, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, I've I've got a little comment that I scribbled in my notes uh, some years ago after I'd been on my first visit, uh, hanging on by the skin of your teeth, um, and and literally when you when you look, it it literally was almost that. I found a New Zealand quote from a New Zealand officer: "Flies hanging on the wall." He described it, looking up at the positions, uh, just just extraordinary. And to be to have to kind of pull on a rope to get up into your position where you're where you're tunneling, and because uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, but an awful lot of tunneling going on here because basically that is where you're safe if you can get underground uh, then you've got a little bit more safety but also the other reason for tunneling is because the lines are so close together if you can drive a shaft underneath your enemy's position then you can detonate uh, an explosive charge beneath them so uh, tunneling became a crucial part of uh, of the of the positions that are so close together just summing up the nature of that fighting that you're describing there pete how horrific it was is there's 225 bodies in Courtney's and Steele's cemetery but of those only seven are identified that we know there's a grave and we know who is living in that lying in that grave uh, six Australians and one British from the um, the Royal Naval Division are uh, identified um, there's 58 men known or believed to be buried in the cemetery so their their names are also recorded on special memorials but only seven of 225, that just shows the nature of the fighting and that most of these men were buried here. Well, they were. All the men that were buried here were buried after the war um, and uh, just uh, obviously impossible challenge to to identify those men so, so long after the fighting. Yeah, it's, it is. It's extraordinary. And again, because we're in a cemetery created uh, after the war up on the on the battlefield, again, very different to uh, the cemeteries behind the lines where we, we have a little bit more care and we can we can bury people and, and name them and, and mark their graves here. No, uh, very, very difficult. So one presumes that the seven that are lying below a marker and they're, they're, they're named, something was found on their bodies uh, in 1919 when they were, their bodies are recovered and moved there. It's, uh, yeah. Extraordinary. So we're continuing along the road now and a little bit further on. Well, directly opposite the, the cemetery is the site of German officers' trench, which was a, a very well-known Turkish position. And in the scrub, there are still a lot of uh, a lot of trenches there from the Turkish positions that faced Courtney's and Steele's. But if we continue along the road a little bit further, uh, there's a bend in the road and, and a sign points out that this was the, the site of Courtney's post. So Courtney's and Steele's cemetery is built on the site of Steele's post, which was the one furthest to the south. And a couple of hundred metres further along is the site of Courtney's post. And it's worth standing there because it gives a very interesting perspective along the front line. It's also worth noting there were nine machine guns at Courtney's post alone. So earlier we spoke about enfilade fire. Nothing gives a better illustration of how entrenched, how difficult it was for forces to attack here than the fact that there were nine machine guns at Courtney's post. Absolutely extraordinary. But Courtney's was also the scene of a pretty famous action when a bloke called Albert Jacker, a Victorian... Uh, won the first Victoria Cross that an Australian received in the war when he, uh, during the Turkish attack on the 19th of May, the uh, the Turks managed to break in to the Australian lines and Jacker, after several men had been killed, uh, Jacker jumped in amongst them and, and, and shot and bayoneted seven 
Turkish troops and and was uh, his uh, his officer found him with a uh, an unlit cigarette hanging out of his mouth and his face flushed and uh, Jacka said I managed to get the beggars sir and Jacka was awarded the uh, the first Victoria Cross to an Australian of the First World War fascinating story Albert Jacka I mean he pops up again on the Western Front it's just an incredible story Pete I mean you leading tours of the Western Front and Gallipoli you must um you know Jacka must be a, a character that uh, that features fairly prominently in your story of the Anzacs. He does. He he features even more than uh, than you imagine because uh, I can uh, almost from the back of my garden I can see uh, where he uh, potentially could have been awarded a second Victoria Cross uh, fighting at Poitiers in 1916, but uh, it w- was not uh, quite controversially was not given a, 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 or was not awarded a, a second Victoria Cross a bar to his Victoria Cross. So he's a he's a real character on the uh, on the Western Front. But this is where it all starts. I often when I read the account of this fighting and the fact that he was able to kill so many men it's very hard to again how does that happen how can one man overcome so many men uh, and survive and i think uh, in the old-fashioned days we'd have called him a berserker you know he would have absolutely looked terrifying you know probably covered in blood uh, and just stunned people into uh, in, into immobility so they they couldn't move uh, and he killed them uh, just just extraordinary these guys have something about them that is even for themselves i think they would have a great deal of difficulty in explaining what what they had done um so i think a berserk is probably quite a good term for them as you as you mentioned jacker at posier um that ex- that attack was extraordinary and jacker himself said it was much more difficult than anything he ever did at gallipoli but at posier after a german counterattack had captured a trench jacker again just went crazy and was everywhere doing everything and killed a number of germans rescued some australian prisoners i think he was wounded seven times in that action at posier there's a famous photo of him shaking hands with another Victoria Cross winner, and he's in profile because apparently the left side of his body was so badly damaged with all these wounds that they uh, that they only shot him from the right hand side. But a sad story as well. He he was terribly wounded in that uh, in that fighting. Uh, he won the military cross for that action, and again in Bullecourt the following year in 1917, he came back to Australia and ran a business in he was from St Kilda in Melbourne he ran a business and was a successful businessman for a while but then his business faltered during the great depression and uh, and he lost that business it, it failed um he was the mayor of St Kilda for a while um but he never really recovered from his war wounds and i think the i think he was he was a very troubled man as well and he died in 1932 aged only 39 and it's very touching that the, his last words said to his father were i'm still fighting dad and uh, he's buried in St Kilda Cemetery, so it's it's hard not to have a soft spot for Albert Jacker. He pops up, you know, obviously in this action on Gallipoli, which was incredible. Then again on the Western Front, uh, and he's a man certainly worth uh, worth remembering. Uh, there's a lot of work being done, I think, at the moment by historians on uh, what we now know as PTSD, and we're beginning to realise that uh, the effects for a lot of these men who returned was quite considerable. Um, when you start reading the, the newspapers of the period into the 1930s, there's an awful lot of what we, we would nowadays perceive, or even at the time would perceive as heroes, who are dying in very strange industrial accidents, swimming accidents, uh, going just going missing... Uh, and uh, I think it's it's becoming more obvious that a lot of them were tr- very troubled men and uh, and actually could not continue uh, beyond the nineteen the 1930s. Um, I think in in the future we're going to know an awful lot more as more and more records become available. And of course in Australia you have that fantastic resource of Trove where you can actually physically have a look at the newspapers of the time. So yeah, it's something that is certainly I think we will know more about in the future. 
We're going to come out of Courtney's post now and continue along the road, but I should just say across the road is something quite fascinating. It's a Turkish mass grave. Now, this is something that wasn't acknowledged for a long time. It was a really strange thing that the Turks, um, although they did wonderful work maintaining or helping to maintain the, the British and the Allied cemeteries, the Anzac cemeteries, didn't have graves for their own soldiers. And um, in recent, only in the last 10 or so years, Turkish researchers have been finding sites where the Turks buried their soldiers in mass graves and they've been marking them. They've always known that they were there, but they were just never marked. And today they've now built memorials. They're starting to put names on the mass graves, but they're really quite large. So most of them were created uh, during the truce after the 19th of May attack. Uh, and this one's the same. So this one contains 2,835 Turkish soldiers buried in these mass graves. So you can just imagine during the truce, Turkish soldiers came out. No man's land was littered with Turkish bodies. Uh, and so they just created these huge mass graves behind their lines. And it's only recently they've started marking them. So it's wonderful to see that the Turkish men who were killed in this fighting now have a, now have a resting place as well. I think it's interesting, Matt, isn't it, is that they, they didn't bother looking for the mass graves and yet they created kind of notional cemeteries, mock-up of cemeteries almost. So you get these headstones at various locations on the peninsula where it looks like they are big Turkish uh, cemeteries. And in fact, there's nobody there at all. They're, they are just notional headstones uh, uh, repeating over and over again, which are very visual. And so they'd created these and yet hadn't hadn't bothered, and bothered's not quite the right term, but hadn't looked or tried to actually locate where the, where their, uh, the, the proper graves are of the men. So it's it's nice now that they are being commemorated and I think it gives you a good juxtaposition of the battlefield so you can actually, we see our beautiful, well-maintained uh, Commonwealth War Grave cemeteries and we can now start to see where, where the, the Turks are, are maintaining um, their own um, mass graves. It's wonderful to see. In recent years, I think Turkish people have, have rediscovered Gallipoli for good and bad reasons. It's also politicised a lot in Turkey. But it's great that there's some wonderful historians now in Turkey researching the Turkish records and trying to tell more of the Turkish story because it seemed for a long time, even even from the Turkish perspective, it was all about what the Allies were up to and the, the Turks themselves didn't really feature very prominently in the story. So it's wonderful to see that's being redressed and that the men who were killed in the fighting, so many Turks killed in the fighting, are now being uh, their resting places are now being marked, but uh, back onto the road we continue along, and eventually on the left we come up to Quinn's Post Cemetery. Now Quinn's Post, one of the most famous, probably the most famous of the the triple posts in this sector from Steeles, Courtney's, and Quinn's. Quinn's was probably the most famous. This was insanity on a battlefield. Quinn's Post was in the narrowest part of the ridge line. It was an impossible position to get to. I've climbed up from. Monash Valley below it. I've climbed up to Quinns and it's just, it's it's an impossibly steep, difficult position and extraordinary to think that the Australians could cling on there for eight days, let alone eight months. I don't know. I honestly don't know how they did it. It's, uh, it, it is actually mind boggling. I mean, the Turks knew it as Bomb Ridge uh, for the obvious reason that, that here there is absolutely no doubt that you could throw your, your bomb, your grenade into your enemy's trench. And that's what they did all day. All day. They just threw grenades to each other. On the Western Front, I often describe that the trenches are never close enough that you could throw your grenade into your enemy's trench because it makes them untenable. But here we have the story of, of, of months and months of fighting here where they just threw grenades into each other's trenches. Mind-boggling. 
And the reason they did it was the reason they stayed there is they had to. They, they couldn't abandon these positions. Neither side could. They had to maintain these positions on the ridgeline. And both sides built what they called bomb screens, which were basically just flimsy shelters they would put at an angle in the hope that as a grenade came over, it would bounce off the screen and fall back into no man's land. So it just horrific sight. Charles Bean described that men in the valley looking up at Quinn's post looked up there as a man would look at a haunted house. Yes. It's some of the most horrific close quarters fighting and and Quinn's has come to symbolize everything that um that represents the horror of the fighting in these cramped frontline positions at Gallipoli. And today, following on from that again, that process of building cemeteries to commemorate these these posts where men so valiantly fought and died is Quinn's Post Cemetery. Uh, and it's the last in this chain of of battlefield cemeteries. So after the war, they collected uh, more than 200 bodies uh, from, from, from the immediate area and, and began this, this cemetery. Uh, and today, there's 473 graves uh, in this cemetery. So quite a large cemetery for these battlefield posts. 294 of the 470, uh, 473 are unidentified. So again, actually a surprisingly large number of identified bodies in this cemetery, considering just the horrific nature of the fighting. They also brought in graves from nearby Pope's Hill and other, other sectors. Uh, in the immediate area, but Quinn's is a is a lovely cemetery, quite large, but it also offers extraordinary views down Monash Valley behind it, named after um, who was Colonel John Monash, who became uh, who on the Western Front in 1918 became the commander of all the Australian forces. So extraordinary views from Quinn's back down Monash Valley. It's probably worth mentioning John Monash here, Pete. Again, another another yep. Australian that you uh, have a, a long association with because of both Gallipoli and the Western Front. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the valley named after him. Uh, I think, is he a brigadier at this point? Um, not sure. He's commanding a brigade. I know he's he? a colonel. Colonel, but he's commanding a brigade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so the valley uh, uh, behind uh, named after him. And uh, uh, as Matt quite rightly said, the view from the, the, the corner of the cemetery is just, well, it's extraordinary when you just step over the wall and, and look down and you think, oh, I don't know what to say, really. It, it is absolutely mind boggling. It's one of those locations where suddenly everything starts to fall into place and you can understand really the horror of holding on to this position here and how difficult it was. Uh, we were just talking about the number of machine guns earlier that we, we'd placed along these these ridges to get that enfilade fire. It's fine getting the machine guns into these positions, but you imagine the amount of ammunition that's got to come up on a daily, a daily basis. How many bombs have got to get up here on a daily basis? It's just extraordinary. The amount of effort that, it, that was needed, not just the frontline men, the guys that are bringing up the supplies, the food, the water, everything else, to keep men in these precarious balancing on the edge of the ridge positions mind-boggling you can spend a lot of time in Quinn's post the the graves there tell the story of fighting uh, all the way along this sector but make sure you do that spend some time in the cemetery and then do go to the back and then look down just extraordinary views back down across Monash uh, across Monash Valley all the way back to the beach it's uh, just a wonderful spot and just imagine men crammed into terraces on the on the hillside below you trying to just hang on in this in this spot really one of the most horrific spots of the entire Gallipoli campaign and bodies, dead bodies everywhere, Australian, New Zealand, Turkish, British, just a just a truly horrific place to be. As we leave Quinn's Post, up ahead, there's a, there's a really bit of a complex that's become now of Turkish souvenir stands and there's a Turkish memorial there. But on the right-hand side of the road is a very large, what appears to be a cemetery. And Pete, this is what you were just describing. It's the 57th Regiment Memorial, and it looks like a large Turkish cemetery. But as you said, there's no, there's no graves here, only headstones. 
it, it, it's uh, it's extraordinary. It's it's quite a, a beautiful thing to look at in a way, and yet very different to everything else that is that is built within the area. Um, it was only completed in 1992, so it's it's fairly recent, really. But uh, and it certainly stands out from almost anywhere on the peninsula. You can you can see this memorial to the 57th uh, Regiment. But uh, yeah, it's um, it, I, I actually like it in a way because prior to it being being created, then there was so little to to from the Turkish perspective of what was going on here, and it is very visual. They like their visual imagery, so it's a it's a, a visual because of the number of graves that are not graves, but give the impression of how many how many people were killed here, and then with the the memorial commemorating the fifty seventh regiment, which was the first regiment to really to uh, to face the Anzacs as they as they climbed up the uh, the the ridges here. So it's it's very relevant um, and yet very different. 57th was famously led by Mustafa Kamel, who had become Kamel Ataturk, the father of the Turks, the founder of modern Turkey. And so this was really where he made his fame as a as a soldier leading the 57th Regiment. And this was where on the opening day, he said to his men when he ordered them to counterattack, he said, I don't order you to attack, I order you to die, was the famous quote from him. And the 57th Regiment did a wonderful job holding up the Anzacs and, and preventing the, the Anzacs from, from taking that ground. Wonderful probably isn't the right word, but they did a they did a, a sterling job in, in stopping the Anzacs and was the main reason that uh, that the Anzac advance did not uh, proceed in this in this sector. But it's a funny thing, the 57th Regiment Memorial. I'm glad they built it because, as you say, you can see it from every part of the Anzac sector. So when you're down in some valley and get lost, you can always look up and see this tower of the memorial. But I always thought it was odd. In the early days when I was visiting Gallipoli, I always thought it was strange that they'd spent all this time and money building a fake cemetery when the real cemeteries were only a couple of hundred meters away, but completely unmarked. They they, they were no they were marked on maps, but they you know only on historic maps. So we did know that there was a mass grave at the bottom of that hill, for example, but it was completely unmarked, and therefore, but but then they spent all this time and money building a big memorial. It's just it's a different way of of doing it, and we we, we can't blame the Turks for that. It's their country, and they can. You know, do the do what they like, but uh, I, I think the only thing to say about it is is the the there's a little bit of propaganda. There's plaques in there that try that tell the story in both Turkish and English about what went on, and there's a little bit of propaganda that gets put in there. Um, but still, it's it's quite right that the 57th um, Regiment should be remembered at this spot because they did such a wonderful job, particularly in the opening days of the campaign. It's also a good spot to get an ice cream and to uh, to, uh, to just have a, a refreshment uh, before carrying on. Because if you're there, particularly in summer, it can be quite warm in this sector and we're now getting up to the top of the hill we've been walking uphill this whole way and it's a good spot to uh, to stop for a refreshment in the area behind the uh the the conveniences and the the souvenir stands uh, again good views of of pope's hill of the of the top end of monash gully where there was a lot of fighting a lot of australian positions i was i poking around there last time I was at gallipoli uh at the top of dead man's ridge which apparently now has been cleared as well and so you can stand there uh, but it was all scrub when I was there, and there was a, a quite a large amount of um, Turkish barbed wire in the scrub there. Big, thick, nasty barbed wire, still very, very sharp. So just be careful if you're going to go bush bashing at Gallipoli because there still is barbed wire uh, and all sorts of nasties. The scrub itself is pretty nasty as well. So always wear long pants and long sleeves when you are bush bashing at Gallipoli. We're going to continue along the ridgeline, Pete, now, and we're going to take a left turn down a dirt road, and this takes us down um, the spur that is Russell's Top and Walker's Ridge. Again, famous landmarks on the Anzac battlefield named after commanders who were there very early in the campaign. We're going to walk down this dirt road, and there's a number of things to see down this road, but the most significant of them is the thing that we come to when we walk down there. One of the most famous sites in the Australian, in the entire Anzac sector at Gallipoli, the Neck 
the scene at the of the famous attack that was depicted at the end of Peter Weir's 1981 film Gallipoli with Mel Gibson, that charge at the neck. And there's a lot to see in this area, uh, but remember this most importantly for that famous charge. And this charge took place in the early hours of the 7th of August 1915 when light horse regiments charged in four waves across no man's land. And a bit of background about the, the, the neck it was depicted in the film, which is where most people know about their history. It was depicted as a diversionary attack. Uh, it actually wasn't a diversionary attack. The attack at Lone Pine that was taking place was the big diversion. The attack at the Neck was a minor operation, which was the expectation was New Zealand troops who'd been involved in the big flanking attack north of Anzac that I described earlier were going to capture Chunuk Bear, the high ground, and they were going, once they captured that high ground, they were going to come charging down the ridgeline and attack the Turkish trenches from behind. So in order to assist them, the, the, the light horsemen who had held the neck for several months were ordered to just launch what would be a fairly limited attack across the narrow strip of no man's land at the neck to take the Turkish positions and, and help the New Zealanders in their attack. I should mention the reason it was called the neck. The neck is an old Afrikaans word which was adopted from the Boer War, which just meant a very narrow strip of ground, a narrow saddle in a hillside. And that describes the ground at the neck perfectly. It is a very narrow strip of land with precipitous cliffs on both sides. And so because of that, this attack that the Light Horse were ordered to make, there was about there was about five or 600 men who would participate in this attack, but because the ground was so narrow, they were ordered to attack in four waves, about 150 men each. And the idea was the New Zealanders would come charging down the slope, the Turks would be attacked from behind, and then at the same time to cause confusion and to take the ground, the, the Light Horsemen would charge and also take the trenches at the neck. But of course, the New Zealanders were held up in their attack. They did not succeed in capturing Chunuk Bear. And so the New Zealanders were nowhere to be seen at 4.30am on the 7th of August when the time for the attack came. And yet, inexplicably, criminally, I would say, the light horsemen were still ordered to attack. And in four waves, they left their trenches and they charged across no man's land into withering Turkish fire. And I just cannot help but think, Pete, about the waves that came after. I mean, the first wave at least didn't know what they were getting themselves in for. Um, but the the waves that came afterwards to be ordered to go out, having seen all of your mates just cut down in those opening waves, just extraordinary bravery. I mean, Charles Bean called it one of the most courageous and futile attacks Australians ever undertook, and I, th- I think that sums it up pretty well. Uh, I think it's I think it's appalling. It's um, you know, I remember the very first time I went there, and there's a ve- uh, having explored battlefields for for many many years. There's very few places where you really it really gives you a, a feeling of of true horror. And I think again, my understanding of the battlefield wasn't correct. Again, the the, the width of the, uh, of the of the attack, uh, the, the landscape they had to cross, the gullies on the sides, where the where the Turkish machine guns were, it's just just appalling and just horrific. And knowing that the the waves went out one after another, and uh, and as you said, Matt, the the later the later waves being very much aware of what was going to happen, uh, because most of them were not getting even clearing the trench; they were being blown back into the trench by the weight of of of, of fire. Uh, just just truly, truly appalling and and unbelievably brave that they just went ahead and, and, and did and attacked and to the extent where the fourth wave they were trying to get them to stop, and the fourth wave almost almost went by itself. 
because it felt it had to. It felt that that, that the, the the previous three waves had, had tried and they had to give it a go, even knowing knowing what what was coming. Just and the stories you know, of of men trying to protect young men, you know, behind, uh, using their own bodies as shields. Are just you know, just so many stories connected with the with the fighting there. Uh, and the and the final terrible aspect is that their bodies could not be reached again. And then we have one of those situations, as we've discussed, where were in previous podcasts where the bodies had to be left and and they will still be there at the end of the the end of the of the war. It, that's the time again when we can at last clear the battlefield of of all of the all of the dead. Uh, just a terrible, terrible moving story. It's really quite horrific, isn't it? And here's an account of um Sergeant William Sanderson who was in the charge and was actually one of the few men to survive. Here's what he said about the charge at the neck. The Turks were too deep in the trench ahead. There was at least one machine gun on the left and any number in the various trenches on the chessboard. And I'm going to interrupt that quote to say this is the thing we should remember, that most of the fire wasn't coming from the Turkish positions at the neck. It was coming from, as we described before, enfilade fire coming mostly from the right, just scything along no man's land and hitting the men from the side as they left their trenches. And so back to Sanderson. The men who were going out were absolutely certain that they were going to be killed, and they expected to be killed right away. The thing that struck a man most was if he wasn't knocked in the first three yards. Trooper Weston on Sanderson's right fell beside him as they got out of the trench, knocked back into the trench. Trooper Biggs also fell next to him. Sanderson went all he could for the Turkish trench. Trooper Hill running beside him was shot through the stomach, spun round and fell. Sanderson saw the Turks close in front and looked over his shoulder. Four men were running about ten yards behind, and they all dropped at the same moment. So just just horrific stuff. So 550 men attacked at the neck, 234 were killed, and another 138 wounded. So just devastating losses for the um, the eighth and the tenth light horse regiments from Victoria and Western Australia. Just just extraordinary. Um, and then, as you said, Charles Bean, the who went to Gallipoli uh, in late 1918, early 1919, went up there and found the bones just lying out there in an area the size of three tennis courts. He called it the bones of all the Australians who'd been killed. So they 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 formed uh, the cemetery. Um, the cemetery is quite extraordinary uh, that is there today. It's basically just an empty grass area that that, that occupies Charles Bean's three tennis courts. Um, but there are actually three hundred and sixteen men buried beneath your feet uh, in the cemetery when you stand there. So th- th- there are there are only five headstones in the entire cemetery, but there are three hundred and sixteen men buried there. And interestingly, none of the headstones relate to men killed in the charge at the neck. They were headstones from men who were buried there, uh, killed at different times during the uh, during the campaign. And so effectively, it's almost like um, we mentioned on the previous podcast, we mentioned VC Corner Cemetery at Fromel, which is a cemetery of all unknown soldiers. It's very similar to that. The neck is a, the Gallipoli equivalent of VC Corner Cemetery, a, a cemetery where a lot of men are buried, but there are, are no headstones marking their graves. I find it very strange because uh, you're absolutely right. I, I uh, compare it always with uh, VC Corner. On the Fromel battlefield, because it, it is it's flat and there are very few uh, a few headstones, but it, it's very different at the neck. The neck makes me feel uncomfortable somehow because we know where the, a lot of the bodies are, uh, all the bodies that are buried at VC Corner, even though they've got no headstones. But here, they really don't know where the uh, where the remains of most of the soldiers that are buried beneath us uh, on on the neck. And, and there's something about it makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't. I, I can't really describe it. I just feel uncomfortable. I think the, these men deserve a little more. Uh, it's it's it is a place that I find quite sad when I when I stand there in the uh, in the middle of the cemetery. 
It was an absolute tragedy, and, and it's well reflected in the cemetery today. I think everyone that goes there feels that feels the weight of that disaster that took place at the neck. Just extraordinary bravery and a, and a, and a terrible story. To the uh, next to the cemetery, when you look out from the cemetery, extraordinary views across all the way to Suvla Bay, across the mad tangle of gullies that are north of Anzac. And this was the area, when you're standing there, bear in mind this was the area where that flanking manoeuvre I talked about that was the whole point of the August offensive took place in these gullies at night without having been properly uh, reconnaissanced. The the men from uh, British, New Zealand and Australian troops had to advance through this mad tangle of gullies with Turks firing on them. Just a disaster. The attack got nowhere. It didn't capture the high ground it was intended to. It surprised the Australians and New Zealanders and British got as far as they did in that attack, but it was just a futile endeavour. Again, the planning at Gallipoli was was the criminal part. Just ridiculously over, overly complicated. The, the, the planning for anything to work at Gallipoli, I don't actually think anything could have worked at Gallipoli, but if it was going to, it had to be simple because the landscape was complicated. Any movement was very complicated at Gallipoli. Trying to get messages and troops to where you wanted them was going to be difficult. Therefore, the planning had to be simple. And it was the exact opposite. The planning for everything at Gallipoli was ridiculously overly complicated and, and led to tragedies like the one we see at the Neck. There's a, there's a, a number of other interesting sites to see at the Neck. Um, in the scrub opposite the cemetery is an old water tank, um, which was originally at Pluggy's Plateau down near the beach and was hauled up there by Maori pioneers to provide water to the sector. And it was dragged up to the neck um, in the post-war years to, uh, to provide water for the cemetery at the neck. Um, but it uh, is long since it's been abandoned, but it's still there in the scrub. So this is water was obviously key in this dry, the dry conditions at Gallipoli. And this is one of the original water tanks that the Anzacs used to, to, to service the troops. Also, there's a Turkish memorial just behind the cemetery. Uh, and it's a bit confusing, this one. It's, it's supposed to be a memorial to a man who was killed on the day of the landing and held off the Anzacs and died with his sword in his hand. Um, that's actually not the case. The, the memorial, it's changed over the years. The, the memorial itself has changed. The base is original. The memorial itself has changed. Originally, this was a memorial to Turks who were killed during the evacuation of Gallipoli because as a last parting gift, and I think rather unsportingly, the Anzacs detonated a mine beneath the, the, the trenches at the neck as they departed and killed about 70 Turks. Um, it was pretty unnecessary because uh, the, there was not much that could have been done to uh, from the neck at that point when the, they were evacuating. But anyway, they let off this mine beneath the Turkish positions. They killed 70 Turks, and this was originally a memorial to those Turks. There was also a memorial at Lone Pine, and there was another one at North Beach uh, in the same style. Um, those ones were torn down by British troops who occupied the peninsula after the war. But fortunately, they left the one at the neck and it's still there. So it's it's not a memorial to an individual. It's a memorial to those men who were killed in that mine explosion. And I haven't seen this for myself, but recent discussions from other historians have said that in the car park in front of the cemetery, you can actually see a large dip in the ground, which is the crater from where that mine was detonated. Um, and so that memorial remembers those unfortunate Turks who died in the very closing stages of the Gallipoli campaign. And we head now down the road Again, great clearance work has gone on here to expose the Australian positions where the light horsemen attacked from. So you can now stand in those cemeteries, uh, in those sorry, in those trenches where the the men who are now buried in the cemetery launched that attack from, and you can start to get a feeling of what it must have been like to stand in those trenches as men fell all around you. And as we continue on down the road, we come to another beautiful cemetery with wonderful views out across across the northern sector of Anzac. And this is Walker's Ridge Cemetery, just a small little battlefield cemetery made at about the time of the of the neck fighting. This this one was made during the war, so not a not a later later cemetery, and a beautiful cemetery offering wonderful views out across that landscape to the north. Pete, what did you think when you saw that landscape to the north of Anzac, where this attack had taken place in August? 
Yeah, e- extraordinary. I mean, the views from here are, are extraordinary, and the the view from Walkers Ridge uh, is is probably, I think, one of the best views on the on the whole of uh, of Second Ridge. Uh, the view um, right the way we across. Um, well, uh, as you were describing, were that uh, attempt to swing swing the, uh, the the Turkish line and and the the New Zealanders as they're fighting in that that low ground there, just 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 extraordinary. And I mean, I think one of the things we haven't talked about is the, the different weather conditions that you can experience this in. And we, I've experienced it mainly in the in the summer. And I actually quite like to go in the winter to see what what it feels like being on these ridges in the winter as well. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a very very move, moving sight on on Walker's uh, Walker's Ridge. So there's 92 men buried in Walker's Ridge Cemetery, 40 from New Zealand, 12 from Australia, and one from Britain. And all but 16 of the graves are identified. Uh, so it's a lovely spot. A couple of notable things about this is there's a number of um, Maori pioneers buried in this cemetery. So the the, the Maoris. Um, were not allowed to serve with the with the with the white New Zealand soldiers, uh, so they were put into pioneer battalions and um, and charged with assisting to dig trenches and to to move things around. Uh, it was announced that they were going to early in the 1915 that they said they weren't even going to be sent to Gallipoli when the Gallipoli campaign was was launched. That they were just going to stay in Egypt and do garrison duty or Malta. They were going to go to as well. And uh, one of the uh, one of the commanders of the Maori battalion sent uh, sent a plea to the New Zealand government. And this is what he said. Our ancestors were a warlike people. The members of this war party would be ashamed to face their people at the conclusion of the war if they were to be confined entirely to garrison duty and not to be given an opportunity of proving their mettle at the front. And the Gallipoli campaign gave them their opportunity and uh, they did lots of great work uh, as a pioneer battalion in support of the fighting. They didn't engage in any frontline fighting, but they were there was no safe areas at Gallipoli and they were always involved in supporting the troops. Um, and several of them lie in the cemetery at Walker's Ridge. Uh, just showing that uh, that it didn't matter what role you had at Gallipoli, uh, it was always uh, you were always going to be in danger. There's also uh, a, a number of cemeteries on the Western Front where you will see Maori pioneers, um, most notably probably Rampart Cemetery at Ypres. Pete, have you come across other Maori pioneers on the Western Front? Yeah, you do. You find them uh, because uh, because they are a pioneer battalion, so they were expected to do their part uh, uh, when necessary, so act as infantry. So you come across them um, all over the battlefields. I mean, I'm lucky. I live in uh, an area where the uh, New Zealand division was actually fighting and very close to where the unknown uh, New Zealand soldier was removed and taken back to New Zealand. And uh, we have a memorial to the missing for this area. And uh, yeah, a lot of uh, Maori uh, uh, pioneers in the cemetery and the cemeteries all around us very close to where I where where I live so yeah um uh, there are there are a lot and they're they're well remembered now at one time I suppose they were not overly remembered but New Zealand's very keen that they should be commemorated and um we have a New Zealand memorial very close only a couple of kilometers from where I am now and uh, um where I live now and uh on the uh, the, the um, centenary of the fighting here, we had uh, two uh, Maoris in traditional dress, and it was the middle of winter, standing there for hours, uh, uh, guarding the, the memorial. So yeah, it's um, it's it's nice to see that they are they are so commemorated. They were pretty hardy during the war, and obviously still hardy today. But uh, worth noting that of the original four hundred and seventy seven members of the contingent that sailed uh, from New Zealand, uh, only sixty were still with it uh, by September at Gallipoli. So that just shows the attrition rate of, uh, of members of the battalion. So only 60 originals out of the 477 who first arrived at Gallipoli. So they uh, they suffered pretty badly, the, the, the Maori contingent at Gallipoli, a good place to remember them. Also, um, Trooper Harold Rush is from the 10th Light Horse who was killed in the charge at the neck, is buried in the cemetery. Uh, and his uh, headstone records the last words that he said to his mate just before he charged out of the trench, which was, goodbye, Cobber, God bless you. 
and he was hit immediately on leaving the trench and fell back into the trench, uh, which is why his body was recovered and he was buried at Walker's Ridge Cemetery. So again, just a, a side of sadness. There, um, there actually is a track down Walker's Ridge, an original wartime track that goes down from behind the cemetery, which goes down Walker's Ridge all the way to the beach. I've done it. It's a hell of an adventure. I would not encourage people to do it. But if you are, particularly if you're with a Turkish guide and you're fit, it's quite quite a privilege to walk down Walker's Ridge in the footsteps of the Anzacs because that track was carved by them and was their main route up to the front. And all the men who were killed in the fighting at the neck went up to their trenches to make that attack along that track on Walker's Ridge. So wonderful little piece of history there. But again, I urge extreme caution. It's very steep. It's not maintained by the, 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 the custodians of the park. Um, it's a rough wartime track, so only do it if you're with someone else or particularly if you're with a Turkish guide. And don't try it going up. It's, it's, it's a steep climb if you go up, so definitely go down uh, back, to the, back to the beach from behind Walker's Ridge Cemetery. Peter brings us to the last stop on our tour. A little bit beyond the cemetery is just a lookout over an area that I think symbolises the absurdity of the entire Anzac sector at Gallipoli. This is the impossibly steep Mule Gully. And Mule Gully is where everyone gets their photo taken when they're at Gallipoli because it is ridiculously steep. Uh, and this is one of the few areas it leads up from the beach directly to Walker's Ridge, but it's so steep that even uh, it was too much even for the Anzacs and uh, the, it was not used as a route to get up to the front line. Um, eventually they had a flying fox that, uh, that, they, that they used to, to bring supplies up to Walker's Ridge, but uh, called Mule Gully because at the bottom of the gully, this is where mules would shelter uh, from, from the firing. Um, but yeah, just a fascinating spot to stand and look back over. You can just see Anzac Cove. You can see North Beach and the commemorative area where they hold Anzac Day services. You can see the Sphinx, the huge sandstone edifice that towers over the Anzac sector and a really fitting spot to end this tour, Pete. I mean, just just an extraordinary place to stand and to, to take in this uh, this rugged terrain. Oh, it's uh, it, the views on on the, on the walk that we've just completed are extraordinary from one end to the other. It, it, I, I think that's uh, that's what really brings it home. Uh, looking looking out over that landscape that uh, that the that the Anzacs are holding, um, and from the ridge there we can we can see it. We can see it all. We're walking around it, but equally what we're doing is we're looking at, at, at what the Turks are, are looking at. You know, this is what they're trying to do, push us off the ridge, and they they are trying to get that view that we have for most of most of this walk. And that's why it was so crucial that the whole of of it was held, because one break in any part and and it would have been all over. The Turks would have broken through and got right the way down to, to the uh, to the beaches, and we'd have been split in half or or, or or just pushed back into the sea. So crucial that these positions w- were held, and that's why the fighting is so ferocious, because the Turks know that if they take them, that's the end for us, and uh, we know that we have to hold them to 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 keep our footing on the peninsula. Uh, it's just an extraordinary place. Very well said, Pete. That sums up, I think, Gallipoli very neatly. It is an extraordinary place, and I encourage you, well, once we're back in ordinary times and we're allowed to travel again to get over there, and it, every Australian... I mean, if you're, if you're British or New Zealand or anyone listening to this, you'll appreciate it, but I think particularly for Australians and New Zealanders, walking the ground at Gallipoli is really something very, very special. And Pete, it's been very special doing it in a virtual sense with you on this podcast today. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Um, please uh, please leave us a review. That's the most important thing you can do. If you're enjoying the work that we're doing and that we're delivering to you, the, the way you can show your thanks is by reviewing and rating the podcast, particularly in Apple Apple Podcasts. That's where uh, most people find us. Please leave a review, leave a five-star rating, and do tell your friends and tune in next week because we've got more wonderful battlefields coming up and great stories of the men who fought and died on these battlefields all over the world. Pete, thank you so much for joining me. It's been wonderful. Pleasure. Very enjoyable.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.